So this evening I thought I would start out with uh, what sort of a connecting up. Uh, Robert talked about the body and uh, last night. Um, Anna talked a lot about the mind, so I thought, and she had a couple of really great cartoons, so I thought I would start with the, something uh, that is actually from the uh, Colorado Division of Wildlife. And uh, what it is is uh, really um, someone who was in the uh, Rocky Mountain National Park and they picked up uh, a flyer on uh, how to deal with bears. And she took and substituted the, wo- the word uh, thought for bears. And uh, this is what comes out of it. Colorado has been a home to thoughts since the earliest ancestors evolved in North America. Today, increasing numbers of people routinely live and play in thought country. (laughs) Learning about thoughts and being aware of their habits will help you fully appreciate these unique animals and their habitat in which they live. (laughs) So here we go. What to do if you meet a thought? There are no definite rules about what to do if you meet a thought. (laughs) Thought attacks are rare compared to the number of close encounters. (laughs) However, if you do meet a thought before it has time to leave an area, here are some suggestions. (laughs) Remember, every situation is different with respect to the thought, the terrain, the people, and their activity. So, one, stay calm. (laughs) If you see a thought and it hasn't seen you, (laughs) calmly leave the area. (laughs) Two, Stop. Back away slowly while facing the thought. (laughs) Give the thought plenty of room to escape. (laughs) Wild thoughts rarely attack people unless they feel threatened or provoked. (laughs) Three. Speak softly. This may reassure the thought (laughs) that no harm is meant to it. (laughs) Four. If a thought stands upright or moves closer, it may be trying to detect smells in the air. This isn't a sign of aggression. Once a thought identifies you, It may leave the area or try to intimidate you by charging within a few feet before it withdraws. (laughs) This is the best one. Five, don't run or make any sudden movements. (laughs) Running is likely to prompt the thought to give chase. (laughs) And you can't outrun a thought.
<laughs> oh my. <laughs> so I'll start with a little kind of poem here that's hopefully points to what I'm going to try to work with tonight. My eyes covered with leaves, jewels, dirt, falling back, quietly untangling my life's stories, fears, longing. Who is this child underneath? The quiet eyes that sparkle, who know love so well. So tonight uh, I would like to uh, play in this field of thought and uh, talk uh, one level just about the relative, this whole process here, uh, which is really a process of purification. It's uh, seeing kind of into uh, our own poisons in some ways, the clasis. And the other is that uh, there is uh, something underlying all this, the absolute, uh, which is not uh, that no way can we interfere with that. Uh, and that it is what it is, and that our practice here is uh, is to uncover uh, what is beneath uh, all this. And so I'd like to talk somewhat, which is more really about the absolute. And then the third piece tonight is actually about skillful means, uh, which is talking about uh, really this um, the loving kindness as kind of an antidote to these poisons, somewhat. Uh, which can help us uh, steady so that we can uh, clear away uh, more of the, um, these clases, these poisons, these, this wanting and aversion. So this is a line from uh, one of the great, uh, he was called the uh, Bombay uh, Wala. They make these little cigarettes, the, the Wallas, and his name is Suis Nasargadath. And he talked a lot about uh, the absolute. And um, this is just one of the quotes, which uh, to me sort of, uh, I don't know, it's one of these, it's sort of like a mantra for me that holds uh, a lot in in how I see and would like to see, um, uh, even when confusion comes. And it goes, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. And somewhere between the two, my life flows. So these last uh, two nights, Robert took and he really took and showed us where the practice is. You know, And it's sitting here in all of its sensations, and uh, there's the seeing, and there's the hearing, and the smelling, and the tasting. Uh, there is uh, the, the sixth sense, which um, Anna was talking about last night, thought itself, uh, which are these things that are in constant flux, constant movement. And we come here, and 
we really are trying to hold uh, two pieces here. One, we can call it alertness. Uh, the alert part takes a lot of energy, and we've really been working hard to hold this kind of alertness here. And uh, it creates concentration, uh, the steadiness of mind. And the other quality is a, is a quality of relaxing, of uh, sensitivity. Uh, and this uh, quality is really that quality of mindfulness. Uh, it is the ability to see uh, uh, and um, recognize uh, what is present. So we need to have these two pieces that we're working with constantly and finding balance uh, between them. I think I'd like to talk a little bit about mindfulness here because it's such a, uh, a big part of uh, the wisdom factor. And I'd like to concentrate first on this wisdom factor, which, which, which as Nisargadas says, wisdom um, tells me I'm nothing. So uh, how, how is it, uh, first of all, that we uh, work with this piece and look at this piece? And I love the word uh, bear attention, that somehow in this uh, present moment, it's something not of the past, not of the future, of right now, as we sit here. And as Robert said, we experience it right here in, the, in our physicalness. It's not something we're thinking up. It's something that's here uh, in the body, in the present moment. Uh, there's relative degrees of that mindfulness, of course. Um, but it has some uh, really essential qualities that we have to look at. And first of all, there is awareness itself. And I like to distinguish, and I, I uh, see that uh, awareness can have still these kind of poisons in it of um, when it hasn't developed fully to uh, mindfulness itself, uh, with greed and delusion in it. And so I, I use the example of a, of a crane uh, standing in water. And it is uh, incredibly concentrated and aware of what's going on all around it. And yet, in itself, there is this uh, wanting, there is this greed factor that's there to, um, in this case, acquire uh, food. Um, and I'm, I'm speaking for the bird, I have no idea. But, <laughs> uh, but that is uh, part of the instinct there. Mindfulness, uh, in its purest form, is simply uh, a state that is not moving towards anything or away from anything. Uh, it is uh, really a reflection uh, of freedom. And it has a, a, an innate intelligence in it. This is from the Majjhimika Nikaya, uh, from the Buddha. The mighty ocean has but one taste. 
the taste of salt. Even so, the true way has but one savor, the savor of freedom. And so this moment of mindfulness, uh, when it's developed, uh, is not leaning towards or away from anything. It is simply something uh, of maybe using the word isness or suchness, uh, I like, uh, that has, though, qualities. And these qualities, which if it was just simply um, a moment with no wisdom, no intelligence in it, then uh, it wouldn't be mindfulness. That would be uh, some type of awareness. But what this has is uh, what is known as um, clear comprehension is, is actually uh, the word used, that it is, uh, goes along with the mindfulness itself. And it has four qualities, and I like to see it as a mandala, and it's the way I, my mind works. And in the center of this is this bare attention, this uh, moment-to-moment uh, arising and passing away of consciousness in one of these six objects. Uh, and there is no moving away uh, from that center. It is simply this uh, resting in this, this, this place. And these qualities of clear comprehension that come with the mindfulness, the first one is known as clear comprehension uh, of purpose. And so uh, in all human beings, uh, there is this possibility of recognizing uh, this longing uh, for freedom. Uh, that this Buddha nature is not separate uh, from uh, who we are. And so there's that recognition that somehow in this mindfulness, even though it, has, uh, it is not moving away or towards anything, it is actually a moment of freedom. It has in it uh, this clarity uh, that it understands this innate uh, longing for freedom. Uh, for this uh, uh, awakening. So that's the first one. The second one is known as clear comprehension of suitability. And it's really uh, the fact that when we're in that mindfulness, just sitting in that present moment without moving uh, towards a pleasant or unpleasant experience, but just in the suchness of it, that there is this intelligence that knows that no matter what there is from the past, from memory itself, that this is a new moment and that we have the capacity to adapt uh, right there and then to what it is that's happening. Uh, uh, A great kind of intelligence uh, that is uh, uh, natural to human beings. This is from Ajahn Chah. When I had been practicing only for two or three years, I still could not trust myself. But after I had experienced much, I learned to trust my own heart. When you have this deep understanding, whatever occurs, you can let it occur. And all things will pass on and be quelled. 
you will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. It is constantly probing, constantly mindful. Your only concern need to need to be need to continue to contemplate. So there is this. Uh, kind of organic intelligence, uh, this basic intelligence that is able to adapt to every situation uh, simply out of this mindfulness, which is not relying on anything but the suchness of this moment. So that's the second one, uh, the um, clear comprehension of suitability. The third one is called the clear comprehension of meditation. And really what it's saying is that um, this ability to recollect or remember is also one of the factors that arises in this bare attention, in this clarity of mindfulness. That uh, we don't have to do anything. There is a natural remembering that happens uh, from that uh, notion of uh, really sense of freedom. And then it happens as part of the practice. As we train ourselves with the concentration and the uh, mindfulness, then it begins to to have its own remembering that happens. Uh, Sometimes I think of this as kind of like learning to ride a bicycle. And at first, you know, you have to learn to steer and pedal and balance and wear the brakes and all that. But soon there is a natural instinct that happens. Uh, And in this case, there is the remembering to come back to that center point again, to this place of freedom, uh, this uh, mindfulness itself. The fourth one is called the clear comprehension of reality. Uh, It's huge. It sounds big. (laughs) But I like to hold it in two pieces. And one of them is that we have the ability um, to recognize that um, uh, what we know as John uh, in that moment-to-moment experience of mindfulness is something that just arises for a moment and passes away. Uh, It's not anything more than that. And so there's a sense of... um, of not uh, projecting. Uh, last night, Anna talked about uh, papancha as these four aspects. Uh, I don't remember the Pali terms for it, but the first one was uh, this wanting mind, uh, always creating. Uh, there was the uh, aversive mind, which always was turning away from. Uh, there was the this mind that kept creating opinions and views about things over and over again. And there was this ability to believe that somehow uh, there was a solid self uh, that somehow could continue. And all this in this uh, clear competitive reality is let go of. So this mindfulness is actually uh, freedom itself. It's not different from that. It is of one taste, the taste of freedom. 
to hold this, uh, I like to use, um, it, it is in kind of duality in some sense, the practice. that this mindfulness is not different than wisdom. And wisdom in itself um, is, um, has the ability to, the the components of this is to see clearly. Uh, To see clearly is to see into the emptiness of self. Uh, Into the uh, um, non-arising of things. Uh, that there is underneath all of this, this constant, which the Buddha simply called Nibbana, freedom or peace. Um, And that um, this practice aims at going to, uh, it could be first of all said to be uh, you know, stress reduction on some level to uh, uh, lower our threshold of uh, anxiousness, our cultural anxiousness. And then as the pond gets deeper and quieter, and as we, it's like kind of like an elevator going down, it reaches into this place of not knowing. It's a place where uh, kind of, we can bear the grace of insecurity, of not recreating anything, but this ability to rest uh, in our bodies, uh, not uh, letting the thoughts uh, simply uh, like a transparent being, letting them just move through like bubbles in a stream. A quiet mind. Uh, as we reach deep uh, into this pond and this well of uh, experience uh, and recognize that uh, we don't have to be ruled by fear. Uh, we can actually, we were talking this morning, there was a question about uh, negativity in the sense, oh, we talk about suffering. Uh, and uh, that the, in the relative world, that's true. Uh, but also we're talking about freedom here. That underneath all of this, uh, even though uh, it is subtle and sublime, uh, the, this clarity is available to us. I have to balance this out, and this is really one of the pieces I want to go to tonight, because once you reach this still point in this place of non-reflection, what is that? What is the quality there? Is that enough? Just clear? I remember at one point in India, and 
I was, a, I guess it was a Hindu monk at the time, and I was living in a ashram on the Ganges, and uh, there was a man who was a pharmacist in a small, um, come from a small village in central India. And I would go and sit with him, and he had, he had been a pharmacist for 40 years, and uh, sort of in the tradition, the Indian tradition, the fourth stage of life, he had gone and become a homeless, uh, uh, a wandering uh, seeker. And um, I had the privilege to go and sit with him in the evening in this ashram, and it was up on the, kind of overlooking the Ganges, this ashram we lived in. And, and uh, I would sit with him, and uh, one of the things was he had tremendous power of concentration. He said he would sit three hours every day, and had for 40 years, and run this, and raised, he had three sons, and his wife, who he had left all his things to when he went off to uh, seek, and he, he, was, he was well-educated, spoke uh, uh, very good English. And I would sit with him, and I could feel, uh, first of all, one of the amazing things was his concentration was so strong, I could actually see uh, he had uh, an, uh, an Indian deity that he had concentrated on and done these practices all, all his life. And I could physically feel them and see them in my mind when I sat in front of him. But what my heart felt uh, was this deep sense of connection, of non-separateness. And it was... uh, with this clarity and the concentration that was there, it was this love. And so underneath this all, if we can say, okay, this, we come here to clear away all this stuff, well, what's underneath it? Is it just this um, quiet mind, uh, this ability to uh, discern? This is from uh, one of the Zen masters, Huang Po, who, um, it was on uh, a treatise called The Transmission of Mind. And this is the way it ends up translated. By Dharma is meant the heart, for there is no Dharma apart from the heart. Heart is no other than the Dharma. For there is no heart apart from the Dharma. This heart in itself is empty. There is no such empty heart either. So in some way, this practice of clearing away, which empties out and holds to nothing, leaves what? And what Huang Po is saying here, it leaves this heart. And so we have, uh, and I'll take us all the way back to actually Anna the first night when she said, well, there is this wisdom practice, uh, which we um, are exploring and uh, seeing many facets of ourselves, our different voices, uh, our stories. Uh, But there is a clearing way. 
And this clearing away allows uh, this dharma, uh, which is this heart, uh, to shine forth. It's interesting to me that it's kind of full circle. uh, Because once uh, we come to that kind of clarity, then uh, it's kind of paradoxical because then we have to own uh, the body again. Uh, We own that uh, maybe uh, as we sit here, uh, there may be no more suffering. Uh, I may not experience suffering anymore. I'm just playing here. (laughs) (laughs) Yet, if this place of freedom is a place of non-separateness, then uh, is there any uh, difference between you and me in that place of non-separateness? So if that person, if any being is suffering in the world, what is that non-separateness? It also is the connection. And so it comes back around as a sense that uh, as long as there's one being in the world that suffers in that place of non-separateness, then uh, the heart uh, knows this. And we have this, what we know is compassion, uh, comes naturally out of clear seeing. It is not something uh, one has to do. It is what one is. It's interesting to me that there's kind of this paradox of on one side there's kind of emptiness or on the other side there's form and um, uh, the formless. Uh, there is um, the mind, there is the body. Uh, and uh, when we own uh, the body and its experience uh, and its non-separateness with all things, uh, then we also own the suffering that exists. And so ultimately, this practice will break your heart. You know, there's no way around it. Uh, it will break your heart. And uh, you can't separate out from the world. Uh, this is not leaving the world. This is actually joining the world uh, in a new way, in an absolutely new way. Uh, having this skill uh, in one moment uh, to let in the suchness of things everything be as it is and in the next moment to care so much uh, that one uh, willingly uh, acts in a way that's naturally kind and uh, loving.
I think one of the beautiful things, my years of traveling in Asia and meeting a lot of teachers, and a lot of them I met, uh, had incredible, um, like Robert was talking about with um, Dr. Stone, that it's just these amazing energetic fields that uh, were uh, available through this uh, balance of uh, concentration and, uh, and relaxing, the ability to see the energetic fields. But the thing that touched me the most uh, was that all the beings that I met, that I had that feeling that they were, had some degree of awakening, uh, is they had a sense of loving kindness uh, that um, gave one confidence. Uh, and uh, the strength to sit in the center of the kind of the fire. So I want you just to hold these two pieces because I think this uh, ability to uh, work with the the wisdom and to uh, recognize that the result of that is compassion and loving kindness. That we have a practice that we've been working with here that is known as a skillful means, uh, a loving-kindness practice, that is a reflection uh, of that essential nature. So it's something that we can uh, use as kind of a medicine. When sometimes you're overwhelmed uh, by... Uh, old stories, uh, um, fear, and um, or anger, or um, jealousy, and it comes and holds us for a period of time. Then we have these skillful means uh, to kind of um, push the poisons aside for a little while, so that we can reestablish uh, a balance and uh, stay balanced in this mindfulness. And we've been uh, teaching this as the metta practice. And it's a, very, it's a very skillful practice in reflecting that, um, that kind of original state. And truthfully, if you just did the wisdom practice, you just did this mindfulness practice, the result would be metta. Uh, that's the result of it. The, the Dharma is the heart, ultimately. But we have the skillful means here to work with it. But we have to understand that the word, uh, you know, there are 13 words in Tibetan uh, for mind. And uh, we have one word for love. And I think that somehow um, we have to clarify uh, what is meant in the, in the Dharma terms of the word love. There is what we know as kind of relative love, which always has sort of a, um, what, um, 
kind of business aspect to it. I love you, you love me, we make a deal. And um, we have all the past conditions of all the ever loves we've ever had, all the stories that go with that, and, and all the projections, and the subtle manipulation. You know, uh, They say the near enemy to, to metta is attachment. So you can see that in that kind of love, there is attachment. And that's uh, part of its basis. It's one kind of love. And uh, uh, certainly, as part of the relative, that's great. But metta is not that. You see, this is where the word is different. The word is a state of being that comes from this uh, place uh, that is so deep in the water uh, that it naturally uh, has this suchness, this uh, freedom, this wisdom factor uh, is already inherent in it. It is more of a state of being. Uh, and the, the thing to know about it, it is that this kind of the state of being, which uh, we call metta, uh, it has no fear. Uh, it simply is a state of being, a movement that happens uh, naturally out of conditions. And these are awakened conditions. So it's a state of being. So there is a second uh, piece here, which is, that first one is metta, like the first building there. Uh, there are four, these are called the Brahma Viharas. They are the uh, four heavenly abodes uh, of, of practice. Uh, and the second one is called Karuna, which is compassion. And the way to understand it uh, has to do with our practice here of coming here and experiencing the defilements. It has to do with suffering. Uh, Recently, when I was in uh, uh, Calcutta and uh, going to Mother Teresa's and um, sitting with these um, street people uh, who were dying, And it was, uh, in one sense, there was such a sense of peace there. Uh, Just an amazing amount of peace. Uh, There was also, uh, looking at the body, uh, the recognition somehow, there were two ways to see it. One was that, oh, I'm not an Indian, I'm not a, you know, not a street person anymore. Uh, And... (laughs) Uh, uh, and we remove ourselves from that experience. There's another way, and that is actually what this word compassion is about. And it is about our willingness to experience suffering. And when we come to this practice, we have learned how to avoid it, you know, from medication to, you know, be busy, uh, you know, a pleasant uh, experience, pushing away unpleasant experience, we've had some way to, to move away from it. And this essential practice is your willingness to feel the suffering. And that that then no longer, it, it goes back to this state of non-separateness. 
you know, this place of suchness. And in that, you are that person. Uh, those sores are you. I was helping a, a woman, uh, a friend of mine who was uh, dying, and uh, she was um, was coming in and out of coma, and um, she they'd amputated her one of her feet, and uh, she had been dial- on dialysis, and they had unplugged her, and uh, her, her she was her body was struggling quite a bit. And people would come in the room and they would leave. And uh, I asked her um, what she knew about the people. Did she know who they were? And she says, oh, I know who they are. But I don't know who they were in the sense of names. And she says, I could tell by a sense of what they had experienced in their lives of suffering. I said, well, what do you mean by that? She explained, well... You know, if a person had only had one on the scale, but they had fully allowed themselves to feel it, she could feel that. You know, and somebody else, uh, and had not experienced anything, the pain that she physically was going through. And it's really what I see as this practice, is our ability to come here, and no matter what your life situation is, you know, you could be Prince Siddhartha, who had all the wonders of everything. Supposedly. I don't believe it, but uh, <laughs> that's the way the myth goes. Uh, actually, I think he had a very controlling father. <laughs> and his mother died of childbirth. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, he had a lot, uh, uh, a lot of visible suffering there. But we'll take it from the mythology side that he didn't. You know, uh, and yet whatever he did experience, uh, that is what is reflected in that that deep in the bottom of the pond. This suchness, this uh, this really almost uh, it's to me like a, a, a mind stream or the river of being or suchness that somehow in that place. We know. You know. We know. And uh, this practice only deepens that in some way. And we'll have to take it out to the world to test it. But um, it is what the practice is. And there is the word, its near enemy is called pity. And it is this ability to separate out from uh, others. So the third of these Brahma Viharas is, uh, we could just say, this it's actually two sides of a coin. We could just say that, okay, we have suffering on one side, and that um, that would be enough. But it's not. Uh, there's another side to this. And the word is mudita. And it, uh, is, it talks about joy. Is that this is a dualistic world where pleasant and unpleasant arises and is in the play, the lila in the play of this being. And, you know, for some people, I find this more difficult than the suffering aspect. And it's our ability to experience joy. You know. 
And I know for me, one of the great experiences for me was having children. And when they were young, uh, being able to see uh, maybe something that I had lost. Uh, The simplicity of... um, of that kind of uh, joy and happiness. And uh, I do, I use this story that, that when my son was, uh, I don't know, he must have been four, and he kind of built one of these mounds of dirt and had all these little toys and uh, Tonka trucks and, you know, I don't know, I think tanks and <laughs> whatever they were. And I remember sitting and watching him and just recalling that, uh, that kind of uh, innocence and somehow in this practice, we, that place deep down is to reclaim that innocence, uh, which again uh, reflects out as this joy of, of, of here in this place that uh, Spirit Rock, that uh, through so many people have been created. There is so much natural beauty and joy here. Uh, to watch just the, the turkeys and the deer and uh, the birds flying here, uh, we can recognize uh, in the nature of things that, that kind of joy. And that it is part of who we are. It's part of this deep stream. Uh, and we can't separate out from that. Uh, and to know that is to know happiness, uh, not just for ourselves. As we know this non-separateness, we also can notice it in others and be happy with their happiness. You know, uh, it is part of the uh, um, part of the clarity that naturally exists uh, in uh, this uh, essence, this heart. And the fourth of these is uh, called upekya, or equanimity. And I think at first I had a, uh, it was not an easy one for me to understand, in the sense that uh, it simply goes that um, no matter what my wishes are for anyone, uh, they... Uh, are the recipients of their own actions. You know? And I think, again, I go back to my kids, and, and um, one of the things is, of course, we don't want our children to suffer. And yet, from this place of equanimity, it's saying, uh, I give you that permission, that you know, it's, it's your life, and to work with it. And somehow that I can still love you, uh, but uh, uh, you are the uh, product of your past conditioning and your present actions. Uh, It's a a big piece to take, but it can be taken also as an understanding of love.
So I think um, I think I'll stop there and just uh, read a poem to kind of end with here. My eye is covered with leaves, jewels, dirt, falling back, quietly untangling my life stories, fears, longings. Who is this child underneath with these quiet eyes that sparkle? Who knows love so well? Let's just sit for a moment. This talk was given by John Travis at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 27, 2002. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.